You're listening to WFMU. This is Too Much Information. My name is Benjamin Walker. And on April 9th, 2003, 10 years ago, tomorrow, American Marines rolled into downtown Baghdad. And two of our guests today were there. Marine Lieutenant Timothy McLaughlin was riding in a tank, and Peter Moss was in a rented SUV covering the war for the New York Times magazine. Are you both there? Okay, so we've got you both there. And joining us in the studio is photographer uh, Gary Knight. No, Gary Knight, sorry. Uh, Tim, Peter, and photographer Gary Knight collected many of their journals, texts, and photos for an exhibit that's called Invasion that's currently up on display at the Bronx Documentary Center. And our third guest is Mike Camber, who is a photographer as well and the founder of the uh, BDC, and, uh, uh, and he also spent some time uh, covering Iraq extensively, and he joins us here in the studio. Thank you. Okay. Um, so thanks to you all for coming. Welcome to WFMU. I just want to say also that this is a live show today, so we'll take some phone calls maybe later on in the hour, but you can definitely chime in now on the playlist page at WFMU.org. You can post questions or comments there now. So I, I want to start off uh, just talking about the the anniversary itself. It seems to me that uh, America has not really been that interested in marking the occasion. Uh, when I talked to you earlier, Tim, you mentioned that it had passed you by. You were, you were busy at work. And obviously this exhibition is a pretty serious contribution to the anniversary, but I want to start with you. Uh, for you, what are we marking? What is this 10-year anniversary? Was it a successful war, a mistake, something that never should have happened, both? And... Uh, do you think, would you agree that America seems kind of reticent to, to mark the occasion? Well, I think, you know, there are a lot of questions in there. Um, I don't know what the anniversary marks for other people, uh, but for me, it marks 10 years ago when the United States government and people asked the Marine Corps to invade Iraq. And I try very hard not to involve myself in conversations of whether we should have gone or what were the politics of it. Um, at the time, I was a Marine Corps lieutenant and my job was to do as I was told. Um, and the Marines I fought with 10 years ago, and I and the people near me did our job as best as we humanly could. Um, and I'm really proud of that fact. Although over the course of time, one of my frustrations became in looking up way far to the top reaches of my chain of command, the frustration that maybe some people didn't do their jobs or take their jobs as seriously as we uh, fighting the war did. Hmm. So that, that's a frustration. Ten years later, um, I was very fortunate to work with Gary Knight and Peter Moss and present a display of what war is actually about in written word uh, through my diaries and Peter's writing and in photographs through Gary's pictures. And we were fortunate to do that at the Bronx Documentary Center uh, which is Mike Camber's uh, location. And, and then, you know, beyond setting that up, the presentation, uh, life gets busy for a lot of people <laughs> with families and commitments and work. Um, yeah. So I don't focus on a 10-year anniversary much personally, but our focus has been on reminding people that these events took place and that they had huge consequences for the people who were involved, whether you're a veteran now or a civilian remaining in Iraq. Um, and one of my frustrations is that the world moves on, you know, yeah. as it should in a lot of ways. But for those of us who are involved, parts of us don't get to move on. 
and that was the purpose of our exhibit, at least from my point of view. And I, I know Peter has a point of view, and Gary does, and I'm sure Mike does as well. Yeah. You know, when you talk about uh, the personal connections, though, the show really starts with your journals, journals that you made, writings, drawings, songs uh, that you, you put together uh, while you were there in Iraq 10 years ago. And, and Peter writes about taking them out of a trunk uh, in your family house, and they still had grains of sand in them. I'm, I'm, you know, so you had put them away for a while, and I'm wondering for you, when you took them out, you know, now they're displayed on the walls of this exhibit, what were the ones that you know, stood out for you that sort of jarred you when you, you started looking at these, these uh, pages again? Yeah, the, um, the story of writing the diaries or of Peter finding them are stories unto themselves, but I didn't read them again for about 10 years until Peter asked me to. And the one thing I wish I could share with people, which we didn't get into the exhibit, Peter, is um, I had a young Marine uh, named Lance Corporal Johnson who was accidentally shot in the leg right through the femur. Um, and what I wrote about was how young he is, or was at the time, reflective of how young all of us were at the time. Um, Johnson is sitting there on a gurney, his leg is bleeding, and the doctors are taking care of him. Um, I'll edit for public radio consumption, but my, um, my senior enlisted guy said to Johnson, Johnson, don't worry about it, think of all the girls you've had sex with. <laughs> and Johnson, bleeding on the table, says, I've only had sex once, Gunny. And he said, well, think of all the ways you had sex with her, at least. And he said, it didn't last that long. Um, and that, for me, in a coarse and crude way, which is how the Marine Corps operates a lot of the time, just reflects that you're, these are 18-year-old kids, and me, a 24- or 5-year-old lieutenant, young man, these are not old and experienced people you're asking to go to war. These are young kids. Huh. And that's what I w wish part of my project could convey. Well, you talk, definitely talk about the consequences and the, you know, the impossibility of forgetting in a way. One of the pieces in the show is your medical diagnosis of mm -hmm. PTSD. It's, it's quite prominent in, in the exhibition. So it seems that, you know, that that's for many individuals like yourself, the, the marking of the anniversary probably is secondary into something that never has gone away. Yeah, and, and when people talk about that, I, I no longer call it PTSD. I simply refer to it as PTS. It's not a disorder, uh, and it frustrates me that that would be the diagnosis or the way it's colloquially referred to. It's just a post-traumatic stress reaction, which is a normal consequence of seeing people die around you and killing people and having your friends not make it and making mistakes and killing civilians. So it's not a disorder. It's just a normal consequence or reaction or result of war. Mm -hmm. And it was important to me to include that in the exhibit because in the military there's a stigma attached to it and society asks questions about it and it's not it's not something you can see like a missing leg um, but to be able to share a diagnosis um, to be in a position to share a diagnosis if it can sh show what the consequences are in, in the typewritten font that the VA uses um, and attach some tangential meaning to that as opposed to some abstract disorder idea. It's a real consequence for people who fight or who are involved in fighting or at the other end of the fighting. And I was happy to be able to share that at not much risk to myself, mm -hmm. I don't think. So but if it can help other people say, yeah, this is, it's no big deal in a bad sense, and it's 
it's a normal reaction that people have, then that's why I shared it. Yeah, I, I, I want to come back to that a little more in a bit. But Peter, oh wait, and also Tim, if you could take us off speakerphone, I think we'll, we'll have a little less feedback. Oh, sure, absolutely. Okay, so Peter. Still there? Yeah, we're, we're there. Peter? Yeah. yeah. So it seems to me that we can get a sense of the, you know, the media's interest in this anniversary by simply looking at how difficult, easy it was for you to get folks interested in this exhibit. Were you were you booked solid for the last few weeks? National television, no time for family work. <laughs> yeah. No, not at all. Well, actually, you know, it's been it's been really interesting because um, first off, it was really hard for us to find a gallery or museum that would host this exhibit. Um, you know, a year ago, when we kind of started talking to people, trying to get people interested, uh, at curators at museums and galleries, we just kind of had this deafening silence uh, in, in terms of responses. You know, we were lo- we'd be lucky to get an explicit answer or a no from, from places. Most places just didn't even respond. And, you know, one Not even the email. Not even the email. N- not even the generic email response. Not even, yeah, so oh. uh, lots of folks just didn't even respond. And there was one well-known museum where the curator responded by saying, I don't want to be involved in any more uh, exhibits about war or violence. And, you know, on a human level, I guess I can understand that. You know, it's, it's, it's hard stuff, and, and you don't want to have to reckon with, with hard stuff, but it's also necessary. Anyways, we had an extremely difficult time uh, placing this exhibit. And, uh, you know, we, we went to Mike Camber at the Bronx Documentary Center, and because it's a really unique place, and Mike himself is a, a war photographer, a former war photographer, he understood it immediately um, what this exhibit consisted of and why it was necessary to put it on and, and actually how interesting it would be. And the strange thing is, actually, that the exhibit's gotten a lot of attention. It's gotten a, a tremendous amount of media attention, actually. It's, you know, CBS Evening News has, has done stuff on it. The Times, the New York, or other places have, have written about it. But the reason is, other than the fact that it's a really interesting exhibit, I think, is that there hasn't been much else for, for the media to write about yeah. uh, during this kind of period of 10-year reflection on the Iraq War, because the U.S. government is, is not marking the 10-year anniversary anyway. It wants to forget about it. The U.S. military, likewise, is not marking it anyway. You know, you don't see or read uh, anything about official ceremonies. So the result is that there are just a couple of things going on that, you know, in our case, a couple of, you know, uh, relentless journalists and a Marine put together. Yeah. So it's it's been both really hard. It's been really nice that some folks are paying attention to the exhibit now, but it's sad that the reason that attention is being paid to this exhibit is because there's not much else out there for people who want to try to yeah. remember and want to try to learn and um, are able to actually grab onto. So you're saying there has been no official response from anyone, you know, the Bush administration, Obama, nothing? No. Well, the, the amazing, you know, leading up to this 10-year anniversary period, which began on March 19th, which was the, the 10-year anniversary of the, the day the first tanks um, uh, headed over the border. That was the day that you know, Tim drove his tank over the border, and I, bro- I drove my SUV over the border. Um, you know, heading into that anniversary, this anniversary period, tomorrow marks the 10-year anniversary of the day that the statue of Saddam Hussein was taken down in Firdaus Square. Um, coming into that anniversary period, I thought that there would be something from the U.S. government, but as it turned out, on that day, March 19th, uh, President Obama issued a 250-word press release. He didn't mention in anything he said that day anything about the Iraq War. There was nothing said on, on the floors of, of Congress uh, 
former President Bush said nothing on that day. Rumsfeld? Uh, former Vice President Dick Cheney said nothing on that day. The only person who said anything, and it was actually kind of pathetic, I think, was uh, former Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld, who, who tweeted uh, one tweet, you know, uh, 40 words about the um, invasion of, of Iraq. And wow. that was it. So there's been a deafening silence and a really conspicuous and to me surprising one from everybody and everything in the government and in the military, current and former, um, related to Iraq. So, so Mike, I want to bring you in here. You can you talk a bit about how the exhibit ended up at uh, the center? Was it, it you know you, they say you you got it right away? Well, yeah. I mean that's a natural. Um, I was in and out of Iraq between uh, 2003 and January of 2012, uh, working for the New York Times. So, you know it's it's um, you know I, I remember Michael Hare wrote speaking of Vietnam something about you know Vietnam is what we had in place of uh, happy childhoods and I kind of felt like Iraq was that for me it was you know sort of the central event of my life and I, I think for a lot of us that served there and spent time there and um, there was no way I was going to let the 10th anniversary go go by and not use that as an occasion to try to um, you know spark some debate and huh. and uh, remind you know the Americans of, of what we went through of, of the uh, the you know thousands and thousands of Americans that were killed and, and Iraqis that were killed and uh, you know uh, I think we've spent between two and three tri trillion dollars that's with a T um, you know it's it's to me it's the most significant thing we've done since you know Vietnam in terms of uh, you know foreign interventions and such and there should good or bad there should be a debate about it we should yeah. be talking about it and the fact that that's not taking place you know at least on the official level as peter just mentioned is that what does that say about america do we want to forget this is it an unhappy childhood that we just want to put away oh uh, you're going above my, my pay grade at this <laughs> point as they say in the military um yeah i think uh you know it, it was a tough war it was a tough war to, it was a tough war to cover um you know it was a guerrilla war no no clear front lines um it got very, very complicated very quickly. I mean, even in 2003, there were different groups. They were fighting against each other. They were fighting against the U.S. Um, you know, it, it was, even if you were against the war, it was very hard to know what to do. You know, yeah. it, I remember very, very early on, it became, well, we can't abandon the country because now we've unleashed a civil war, you know. So, so that was the, you bought it at, uh, you, you, you broke, broke it. it. You bought it. it what, what store was that? Uh, I think Colin Powell said yeah, he it was, ordered some. I know, but what was the store? I think it was supposed to be Pottery Barn. Yes, but Pottery Barn. That's not actually the, the, the policy at Pottery, Pottery Barn, but um, <laughs> that's, that's what Colin Powell thought the policy was. <laughs> well, well uh, Mike has a book that uh, uh, I want to talk about in a little bit as well. But tomorrow is actual, the actual anniversary of the day that the statue came down in, outside the Palestine Hotel. And Tim, both you and Peter were there. Peter, you've written about this media event in an exhaustive piece for The New Yorker a few years ago that it's one of my favorite uh, pieces about the war. I, 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 it's still, uh, there are so many things in there that I, I, I still think about, you know, years later. But um, I wanted to, to get both of you who were there to t talk about, you know, what went, happened on this day and what shouldn't have happened. Tim, Tim let's, let's go back to you. Um, well, um, what happened? Yeah. Well, to answer the first question, what shouldn't have happened, there's, you look at it from different points of view. From my point of view, I'm just a Marine. And there's nothing that I that occurred that day that I would change from the Marine Corps point of view. Um, leading up to that day, uh, we were engaged in combat operations for three weeks, roughly. I think mm -hmm. um, 
heavy fighting followed by boredom followed by heavy fighting um, following April 9th there was still fighting going on Corporal Gonzalez was killed a few days later Corporal Milio was killed a few days later so April 9th to me is just in the middle of all that um, for the rest of the world who would have been watching at home on their couches um, they saw something on TV as well that reflected what the broadcast media showed them but all that was was a snippet in time uh, a short soundbite or a picture uh, that didn't really have anything to do with the combat operations that were ongoing uh, with the people who were dying. So on April 9th, no, back up a step. Except for a moment that the Marine Corps is a particularly patriotic service, there are not that many of us. Um, and of the many things we do well, we fight battles. We put our sticker on everything. If you've ever driven around on the highway, you can see that. Everybody's got a Marine Corps sticker on if they were in the Marine Corps. So part of that is reflected in the Marine Corps ethos. You're patriotic, you love your country, you carry a flag with you sometimes, you carry a sticker with you other times. I happen to be a guy who had a flag with me. There were lots of us. Um, I love my country. Uh, I was doing what I was told to do by my country, so I had my American flag, which was reflective of my patriotism, which you'd find among lots of Marines in the Marine Corps. Uh, a few times during our route up, I tried to get a picture of my flag in Iraq so that I would have it for my own posterity to perhaps show my grandkids someday. Um, we literally got shot at one day, so no picture of my flag. Another day, the flagpole got run over by another tank. Um, I think they were messing with me. As so, you were trying to put it up. Yeah, but, it, but not yeah. in front of anybody, just for myself. And one of my buddies, I think, literally ran my flagpole over. Yeah, I think they were messing with you. <laughs> yeah, I think they were messing with me at that point. Um, so on April 9th, uh, we get to this square. Nobody's shooting at us. You and my company commander say, Mac, go get your flag. We'll get a picture for you. So that's all that happened for me. Um, and I, I understand at the same time that the rest of the world saw that because it's what was broadcast. And spins or opinions or images were put together, and then people changed their minds later on. That's all real as well. Uh, I fully understand the symbology that goes with the flag. Uh, but that's not what it was intended as, at least from a Marine Corps point of view, or at least a young Marine's point of view. So that that's the story of my flag. It had nothing to do with the combat operations, which are of utmost importance to me and the consequences of those. It's just a thing that everybody saw on TV and wound up having an opinion about. So when you handed it to the uh, your colleague that was up on the statue, did, did you know that that's, that's where it was going to go for your picture? No. On no. the Saddam statue's head? Um no. Um, you know, Corporal Chim was at the top. Sergeant Sutherland was underneath him. Gunny Lambert was there. Captain Lewis was there. A number of other Marines were there. Handed it to Captain Lewis. Didn't know if it was going to be waved or put on the shoulder or draped nearby. And I don't think Corporal Chin knew either. I think he says, I, I just got it and stuck it on the face. Took it down, put up an Iraq flag. Took it down and then kept going. Hmm. Uh, so that's about it. It's a remarkably uninteresting story when you strip away the media. Well, I mean, for, for Peter, I, I, I think you would disagree. You've ri- you wrote in, you know, a very, very long piece. You, b- you were obsessed with the story for, <laughs> for, for a long time. What, what for you is so, w- w- you know, important about what happened on this day? Well, I think actually, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm with Tim. It was a remarkably uninteresting event, but what made it interesting was the media. And so the kind of, you know, creation of the event by the media 
was actually quite fascinating. You know, the event itself, I was there too. You know, I had been driving along with Tim's battalion in my SUV, and when I, you know, was watching the, the few Iraqis and then the, the, the Marines go, go after the statue and, and put up the flag, I mean, I, I, was, I was, you know, paying 10% attention to that. I was at Firdaus Square because it wasn't important. It was just kind of like, you know, uh, unimportant stuff compared to absolutely everything else that I'd seen and lived through during the invasion. And it was unimportant also in relation to other things that were going on in Baghdad on that day. The, the city was being looted, you know, the government buildings and many other structures were being, you know, taken apart almost quite literally, or they were on fire, there was still fighting going on. Uh, it was chaos. And, and that was much more important and much more uh, uh, telling about the future of Iraq. But, you know, unfortunately, the event that the media focused on was this, you know, toppling of the statue. And I, I, I kind of became obsessed by it in a way because I wanted to figure out how did this kind of, yeah. you know, monstrous, um, <laughs> uh, monstrously important um, event or seemingly important event get created out of nothing. I was there. It was nothing. It wasn't important. Um, and so I tracked down all the journalists and all the Marines involved, including, you know, producers who were in TV studios making decisions about what to put on the air and why to keep it on the air and how often to repeat it on the air. And it turned out to be a really fascinating story about how um, an event, although it might actually happen in a strict sense, isn't a really authentic event if it's been kind of created or influenced by the media and the media's role isn't reported. So, you know, on that day, what people sitting in their living rooms in America saw was, you know, some Iraqis taking down this statue and a couple of Marines there or whatever. But the actual fact of it was that, you know, mostly that square was empty, and most of the people in that square, uh, and I've kind of done, you know, really good kind of forensic analysis of all the video and, 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 and photo footage, most of the people in that square, and there weren't that many, a couple hundred, were Marines or journalists. And then, you know, all the kind of nice shots you got of Iraqis slapping their, their, their shoes against the um, uh, uh, toppled head of Saddam Hussein, you know, well, these Iraqis were surrounded by rings of, of photographers, but you didn't see that. And mm. so the way that the media presented this event by cutting the media out made the context go away. People thought, oh, yes, this is Iraqis just doing this on their own with a little bit of help from Marines. But no, it was something much more... Uh, um, concocted in the sense of everybody was reacting to the media, the presence of the media. The commander who gave the order to take down the statue told me afterwards, yeah, I, you know, I, I gave the order to take it down because this was being broadcast and it would be a bad image for the statue to remain standing once its toppling had kind of begun and, and, and not been accomplished. Mm. And, and this wasn't a kind of you know, unusually manipulative decision he made. I think any good commander would make that same decision. But it's the media doesn't have to kind of, you know, go along with it uncritically. The media should report that, you know, actually this decision to take down the statue was made as a result of the media's presence, not as a result of something that uh, uh, was unrelated to all these journalists there. Yeah. So it, I just kind of reconstructed and deconstructed this media event, which yep. really was a false event in, in many ways, including false as far as meaningful providing meaningful information to us about what was going on in Iraq and what would happen in Iraq over the next years. Sure, sure. But it's, you keep dancing around this issue of, like, who was responsible here. I mean, is it, it's not like that line from Liberty Valance, it seems like. It's, it's, you know, don't bother with the facts, print the legend. It seems that, like, there were individuals responsibly for putting this concocted story, concocting this fake story. 
Well, you know, I, I maybe I shouldn't use the word concocted. Um, and even the word fake is too strong because fake implies that, you know, it was entirely concocted from hmm. beginning to end. And it wasn't in the sense of, like, there was no grand plan from up high in the Pentagon. And, you know, there are lots of, or in the White House, there are lots of things we can criticize the Pentagon and the White House for, but they were not involved in creating this event. Uh, you know, the, the media was, on though. The scene wasn't involved in creating the event in, in any kind of premeditated or any significantly premeditated way. You know, the concoction concoction's a, a, a strong word, so maybe, you know, the, the, the better word is, you know, <laughs> influence of, of the media was the key thing, so that the media was an active participant in, in creating this event, yet that information was not conveyed to people, and that information was very important in terms of figuring out really how authentic and meaningful this event was. Yeah, but you talk about all the media that's not in the photos who are there. And I'm, I'm curious, Mike, for you, you, know, you were not there, but as a photojournalist, it seems that you know, with this story, you have been in situations where there is this much media, and yet they end up not in the footage, you know, they're sort of you know. Sure, sure. Well, there's there's a few different uh, there's there's a few dis- different issues there. I mean, one is um, you know there's many instances of this where the photographers will band together, they'll stand on one side and shoot all in the same direction. Um, you don't want any other photographers in your shot. Obviously, television is the same. You want to create that fly on the wall illusion um, that we uh, you know strive for, and um, you know that's that's one issue, but. You know, of course, you can do a lot of things with a telephoto lens. You can zoom in and crop things out. Um, but I think with this photo, I mean, Peter knows far more about it than I do. But with this whole event, the toppling of the statue, you know, it's sort of a perfect storm because Firdos Square is right at the nexus of the Sheraton and Palestine hotels. And every journalist in Baghdad was in those hotels, or virtually every journalist uh, who had been staying in Baghdad, you know. so. I mean, it's right at the foot of where the press is staying. Um, you know, the press the press needs a story. They're on deadlines. They're in a hurry. Uh, sometimes they're scared to go out. There's bullets flying, you know. To go out into Baghdad and, and maybe get killed trying to dig out the real story, that's, that's a tough assignment. But you can literally shoot out your window and get footage of this statue being toppled, and boom, you've got a story for yeah. your boss back in New York, and there it is. Yeah, but Peter, you talk about you know the decision makers that weren't there outside, sort of directing journalists that you interviewed, and, and you put stories back together, sort of really trying to play up something, even when the journalists were saying to their editors, "But wait, this like you just told us wasn't exactly true." Well, there's an echo chamber effect that kind of was at play here too. Uh, Gary Knight, who's our, our colleague, the photographer, who's kind of the third person with me and Tim who put the exhibit together. Uh, Gary was also at Firdos Square. He also, you know, had this rented SUV that he drove along with Tim's battalion and me and, uh, and got to Baghdad. Um, Gary was there and he was at the square, had the same reaction I had, which is, you know, this is kind of, kind of nice and fun and silly or whatever, but it's not important. He wasn't really, t- he wasn't taking pictures, but then he got a call on his satellite phone from his editor in New York. And his editor in New York said, you know, what are you doing? And Gary said, well, I'm just standing here. You know, there's this kind of thing going on here with the statue. And the other said, you're taking pictures, aren't you? This is really important. I'm watching on CNN right now. And Gary said, no, it's not important. And, and, but the other said, take pictures. This is, this is the news. This is what's happening. This is what everybody is watching and everybody is talking about. And everybody will be talking about. Take mm-hmm. pictures. And so, you know, and I'm telling Gary's story here, but, you know, the story Gary tells, which is, has been, you know, replicated in, in, in similar ways by many other journalists. Is that, you know, he just stood there basically still talking to his boss and then started shooting frames of the statue being taken down because he was being told to, and he was being told that that was the, the picture that they wanted and the picture that they, they would end up using. 
And that happened with a lot of journalists. There was a San Francisco Chronicle reporter I talked to, Robert Collier, who had been in Baghdad during the invasion. Um, and when the, the statute was taken down, or after, I should say, you know, he filed a story to, to his editors in San Francisco, which accurately said, you know, uh, this wasn't that big of a deal. There's much more of greater importance going on. The war was still going on. Iraq was an extremely troubled pr- place. Things didn't look very good. Um, and uh, the story was changed back home by the editors. And it wasn't mm-hmm. changed because they had, you know, better sources of information than their correspondent in Baghdad. It was changed because they had been watching these TV images, and they were affected by what they saw on TV from the CNN cameras, not from what their own reporter was actually reporting. And they didn't want to be out of step with what everybody else was reporting. So, Tim, I want to come back to you um, to, to talk about the flag a little bit more. What, you know, the flag that you just told us about is in the exhibit. Uh, it, it, it's obviously uh, something, you know, very important with you that you brought with you. But I, I'm I'm wondering if you could if you could tell us the story about this flag, and where it came from, and why it was so important to you. Uh, well, it was important to me because it's the United States flag, and I was a Marine, uh, so that's the short and simple and complete answer to that. Um, it it in and of itself was not particularly important. If you had given me any other flag from anywhere it would have been the flag I carried Um, this particular flag was given to me by a congressional staffer who was a family friend whose name I truly forget Um, it was given to me a few days after the 9-11 attacks although other than that it was unrelated Um, as an even younger marine lieutenant um, I worked at the Pentagon while I rehabbed from a severely broken leg and I spent September 11 2001 helping the fire and rescue personnel inside the courtyard of the Pentagon. And a few days later, I had made my way back to my older brother's house. Family friend comes down. I think she literally had two extra flags in her car. She said, hey, uh, I'm, I don't know what to do, but you guys have had a tough week. Um, she gave us each these very standard, very normal-looking flags in a carpet, cardboard box, um, and I just happened to hold on to that because it probably saved me $8.95 from having to buy one on my own. Um, so that's where it came from. Um, it was important to me because, like I said, Marine Corps, I love my country. still do. still love the Marine Corps. Um, I have an American flag at home. Uh, I have a Marine Corps flag at home. Um, it's just the nature of the business from the Marine Corps' point of view. So that's where it came from. Um, like I said, I know stories attach and symbolism attaches, and that's all right and correct as well. But for me, that's, it's a very normal flag and a very normal thing of taking a picture of my flag, which the rest of the world saw and ran with. Sure, but in the journal, you talk about, you, you, you do an accounting of, of the day of, of 9-11 for you at the Pentagon, and it seems for you that this, this uh, flag becomes very important as a symbol of what happened to you and the country on that day. See? No, I disagree with that, and I... I I don't think that's in my diaries. I wrote extensively about my day on September 11th, 2001, but I'm nearly certain I didn't write a thing about somebody coming to give me a flag after that. I thought I thought that that at the end at the end of the day you talk about the story. I mean, maybe it's just for me reading more into it in that it, you get the flag at the end of the day. That's the the No, I th- I and I don't mean to correct you, but I I think that's not in there and and but you know, people People remember things differently, and that's how symbology is. Yeah. I guess, you know, what it really comes down to for me, you know, and so many people at this time, and you you referenced this earlier, there were so many Americans who were, uh, 
you know, we're, we're being driven crazy by some of the connections being made between 9-11 and the, the, the invasion of Iraq, even though, you know, it was, it's been proven now countless times that Saddam Hussein really didn't have anything to do. Well, I can't actually answer, answer that directly, um, because on, on April 9th, 2003, um, I got to the square, and like Peter said, there were journalists everywhere, and a journalist who I have tremendous respect for, his name is Steve Farrell, who worked for either the London Times or Guardian at, at the time, he interviewed me that day, and my interview from April 9th, 2003 appears, you can read it, and he said, what about this connection between hmm. September 11th and, and Iraq? And my answer, in quotations in his article, is, I know Saddam Hussein didn't have anything to do with 9-11, but I think that given the opportunity, someone like Saddam Hussein would be certainly willing to try to inflict damage on, on the West. So in that sense, there's a philosophical connection, but I don't, at the time, I didn't think Saddam had anything yeah. to do with it. Today, I still don't. I think history has proven that out. Yeah. Uh, but that would have been my answer then and, and still now. Yeah, you know, I, I can uh, remember I was covering the war in, in um, Liberia and, and Cote d'Ivoire. I was based in West Africa. And, um, you know, I, I remember tr I wanted to go to Iraq, but, you know, I was tied up over, over in Africa. And uh, I was covering these dictatorships, you know, just these horrible dictatorships where people really, you know, sort of like organized crime syndicates that were running these countries and had people under their thumbs. and. I thought the war in Iraq was a great idea, you know, I, in the beginning, you know, uh, before the invasion, of course. It just seemed so clean and simple, and this is a bad guy, and had nothing to do with WMDs, you know. Um, I just I just thought, this guy's a, a killer, and he's he's got to be taken out, and we'll just instill democracy, what could be simpler than that? And once I got there, and <laughs> I, uh, I, I quickly got an education on what the real world was like over there. Yeah, but as a war photographer, you know, you being... You working in in these dictatorships, and did you have a sense that that might actually be a little harder than it looked on paper, and the way that you know that some of the cases that we had seen made that how this could work, that you something that you were for? Yeah, I mean, sure. I'd um, you know followed followed Vietnam. I mean, I grew up on the Vietnam War, watching it on TV and all, and read about it. I mean, I know how counterinsurgencies work and such, but um, you know, I guess I guess I had um, just a lot more faith. Uh, in uh, you know the, the highest reaches of the U.S. government to to carry out the mission in a competent fashion, really. Yeah. Well, one of the um, and that goes back to what I was talking about. You know, me and my Marines, we worked as hard as we could to do as best as we could in awful circumstances. And you get someone like General Shinseki, to his incredible credit, who spoke up and said, "Hey, this quote plan you guys have, you might want to rethink it." Um, and to his credit, he spoke up and said that, which needed to be said. But then he was asked to step aside. Yeah. He wanted to go in heavy. He said, we need a lot of troops. We need to go in there. We need to occupy the place and, and hold it down and, you know, instill order and such. And um, Rumsfeld was very clear. You know, he had, he had a, a doctrine, and it was, we're going to go in there light and fast and get this over with, and we'll have, you know, U.S. combat troops out in no time. And, yeah. uh, I mean, maybe Peter can weigh in on that. Yeah. Peter? I mean, I, I think that both of the, uh, one of the kind of problem not problems I have with the debate, but just I guess my own personal feeling about um, what conclusions we should make, and these are just my feelings, and I you know for whatever they're worth, is that you know light and fast certainly didn't work, but you know heavy and long wasn't going to work either. I, I don't think the problem was execution. Uh, yeah, 
certainly the occupation was horribly executed. I mean, just, you know, incompetent officials on the American side um, from, you know, the 23-year-olds just out of college who were, you know, tasked with running in Iraqi ministries to, you know, Jay Bremer, who was in charge of the whole occupation. Yeah, it was, you know, just messed up from the get-go. Terrible decisions made, terrible people making the decisions in terms of competency. But I don't think that was the real problem, actually. I don't think that it would have succeeded even if you had more brilliant people hmm. there. You know, I, I don't think that a foreign army in, in, a, in any given country at this in this day and age is going to remain popular and successful for very long. And getting back to what Tim was mentioning, which is just so true at the beginning of the show about, you know, was it Lance Corporal Johnson, who was 18 years old? You know, the vast majority, beyond majority, I mean, you know, I don't know, 80, 90 percent of the, the, the actual boots on the ground that you have in the U.S. Army, U.S. Marines, um, are 18-year-old kids or thereabouts. You know, even 25-year-olds like Tim <laughs> are the minority, and then the officers, uh, you know, there are really very few of those around. So basically, you know, we're expecting 18-year-olds um, to, with their weapons and with just their military training, to somehow be really kind of sensitive uh, operators and occupiers of a foreign country over a long term no that, that that's just asking too much of any 18 year old of any army uh, yeah. to operate that way in a foreign country so I just I think the whole idea of like we botched the the, the, the occupation um, is it proceeds on a foundation that is really weak which is that the occupation could have succeeded if it had been executed better right Right. Yeah. Well, that's uh, we can debate that forever. But <laughs> yeah, certainly, yeah. when you, you know, certainly when you send uh, groups of eighteen-year-olds in there from from you uh -huh. know Middle America, and immediately, I mean, almost on the first day they get there, uh, you task them with nation building and uh -huh. taking over government, and you know they're yeah they're putting lieutenants in charge of whole neighborhoods uh, with no translators, nobody speaks Arabic, and you know they're tasked with getting the neighborhood up and running, getting electricity, getting water. You know, I mean, it was just, it was extraordinary to, to, to see this. Uh, yeah. And these guys are completely unequipped, uh, you know. So, I mean, there's, you know, but, but again, w we can argue it forever. But there's, to me, the key, the key uh, point, or one, one of the key, key points comes in um, the book, um, with, uh, the Emerald City book by Raji from the Washington Post, forgetting the exact title. And, and he describes, um, you know, the military guys getting to Baghdad and, and, and running into the State Department guys and saying, um, so, you know, here we are, uh, and let's execute the post-war plan, give us the post-war plan. And the State Department guys literally saying, we thought you had the post-war plan. Yeah. We don't have any post-war plan. It's like the worst cartoon that, you, you know, it's it's terrible. You can't make this up. Yeah, you can't I mean, make this up. And, and, you know, Peter very, very well may be right. You know, maybe there was no correct way to do it, but this certainly wasn't it. But, but when I think back to 10 years ago tomorrow when I was watching the, you know, and, and again, like seeing those images being played over and over again, I personally felt like I was watching a manufactured media event. But I, in a way, I kind of hoped it was true. I, you know, I, I, I definitely went into the war really, uh, you know, really, really uncomfortable with some of the justifications we had for going into it. I had many, many questions about the veracity of some of the claims. But at the same time, I didn't want to be proved right. I was, I was, there was, you know, definitely a moment where if this is over, this is great. But it wasn't. And it seemed to me that those questions we have that, you know, all, th all three of you have been talking about th these, these questions, they became sort of 
not the point or or sort of in the way very quickly like once things got complicated in Iraq it, that idea of going back to, to debating over the justifications or the stories of Judith Miller or all, all you know or Colin Powell's UN speech they seem to really get in the way of the job like that that you know soldiers like you were supposed to do Tim and, and I found that so frustrating well I I have actually never seen the footage you've seen um, I, I wasn't there was no internet where I was, and no mobile phones. So I've seen pictures, but I've never seen those descriptions you've seen. Uh, and then what you described is how movies work. Uh, movies have a beginning, a middle, an end. They have a plot, uh, and someone writes it. And at the end, usually you feel pretty good, unless uh, unless you're watching you know, The Empire Strikes Back. Uh, but you described how movies work. Um, war is not a movie. It, it may be turned into a movie by Hollywood for profit. Uh, it may be turned into easily understood nuggets by politicians who have a point of view in media who are trying to sell commercial space. But one of the things I like about programs like this is an opportunity to talk about the complexity yeah. of war because it's, it's not a movie. Um, life goes on and it doesn't have happy consequences for most people who are involved. Um, and that's why this idea of talking about April 9th and a flag and a statue has so little resonance with me because all of the questions going into war uh, you know, were the reasons given correct, were the weapons of mass destruction um, what happens when you send 18 year olds, what happens after when you send 18 year olds, what happens when you take a Marine Corps that's trained to fight and kill and ask them to nation build, yeah. well I guarantee you the Marine Corps will figure it out very quickly as best as they can but keep in mind what the primary mission is, it's to fight and kill so we'll figure it all out, but all of those other nuanced questions are so much more interesting than how movies work. You know, go see Zero Dark Thirty if you want to see a movie. It doesn't have any relation to reality. Yeah. <laughs> you, yeah. Want, you know, the uh, the other movie, you want to talk about a movie that really doesn't Yeah, have, yeah, uh, The Hurt Locker. The Hurt Locker. We used to howl with laughter in Iraq. Whoop. Everybody thought that movie was the real thing, you know, back home. And we would put that on and just laugh for two hours. I mean, it was, a, it was a comic book. Yeah, but, you know, I have to say, Tim, that, like, where are Americans supposed to learn about these nuanced, complicated questions? Because when I look at what the media did, you know, we, we've been talking about government screw-ups here, but, you know, including this day, including the lead-up to the war, including the complicated stories, I'm sorry, like, and I have two members of this team here, Peter, and, like, like colossal screw-ups. Well, and, and, and you're exactly right, and that may have something to do with the quiet reaction we got from interest in the project. But when Gary, Peter, and I embarked on this project, somebody asked me, what's the point of this? I think it was my wife. She actually said, why are you doing this, Tim? Uh, and I thought about it, and my answer reflects your question, which is there is so little publicly available information that describes the nuances and complexities. So take my diary, for instance. My diary has nothing to do with the political discussions and the, the governmental policies, but at least it it's a representation of the complexities of war while it's happening. So to introduce that into the stream of commerce or the, the stream of media and make it available for people who are at least interested in trying to understand the complexities. Yeah. Um, yeah, just but making it available to people so that they can form an opinion as opposed to being fed an opinion. And I don't care what their opinion is, and I hope almost all of their opinions is that war is awful stuff and we should think twice about doing this next time. If I could 
get one person to read it, form that opinion, and move on, it would be worth it for me. Um, because you're right, there is a dearth of real information, source material, if you will, uh, available. Uh, and take, I, take WikiLeaks. You know, on one hand, that's a breach of secure information. On the other hand, at least it's source material. Yeah. yeah. I also think that there were, you know, in, in defense of journalists, I mean, <laughs> there were... Well, good there <laughs> were, <laughs> good luck, know, dude. <laughs> yeah. There were a lot of journalists who did do a good job. I mean, you know, starting with uh, the Philadelphia Inquirer and I think Knight Ritter. I mean, they did, you know, pretty extensive reporting uh, long before the war, uh, calling into question the whole WMD thing. Mm. Uh, you know, and then during the war, there were, there were good journalists. I mean, if today, if you read Peter Moss's New York Times article from you know, 2003. I mean, it's it holds up. It stands up. I mean, it's a complex, good, solid piece of journalism. And I was over there for years, you know, working for the New York Times with, with you know, Sabrina Tavernese and Dexter Filkins and, you know, lots of great journalists, some who gave their lives, you know, literally gave, uh, Iraqi journalists in particular, who yeah. gave their lives to get pictures out and stories out. Um, I mean, you know, 150 Iraqi journalists were killed in that war, putting out information good solid information and I would come back you know from my tours there to America and I'm sorry but you know hardly anybody was reading this stuff yeah. you know I mean and I talked to people on the on the street and people people weren't following the war you know and weren't weren't keyed in on it and you know to some degree the American people need to you know look in the mirror a little bit you can't blame it all on the journalists uh, I did, I did, and I don't think it I think it's the distinction between journalists and the media industry because right. all of my experiences with almost all of the journalists I've ever interacted with is that they're out there trying to do the right thing and get this information to an American public that's usually too lazy to, to review it and a, a media industry that knows that. Yeah. And just, just feed them what, what will sell a commercial space. But I would say that, that one of the um, kind of how do people figure out what to think or, or, or get, get into complexities is Talk to a soldier. Talk to a marine. You know, one of the one of the problems I think of our society, the way that kind of military-civilian relations are in the society, is that the military, now that it's a volunteer military, actually is a relatively small number of, of self-selecting people, and it doesn't represent in many ways, geographically or economically or socially, uh, cross-section of the country. So you have a lot of civilians who have no contact whatsoever with the military and you know I've never talked to talk to a soldier or marine and, and don't have access to people who really know more about war than the civilians do and you know actually you know my experience has been that soldiers and marines you know they're less gung-ho and more realistic about war ahead of time than than civilians are and that's often the way it is yeah. in terms of political uh, you know civilian military relations and I think that's that's one thing that maybe we're we're, we're still missing in this society is that there, there's not a lot of or there's not enough contact and interchange between the civilian and military parts of our society. But I want to come back to this, you know, the media event of the ninth, Peter, because I, for me, one of the things I got from reading that article a few years ago was a sort of relief and an understanding that yes, I, my, all my anger and frustration at the media machine was totally valid. <laughs> I mean, it's just that, that, that there may have not been a plan to sort of keep something like this craziness from happening, but it still happened because of the incompetence. And, you know, uh, there was a lot of mistakes that were there's, – there's, there seems to be some culpability there that was never really acknowledged. Well, you know, one of the frustrations that I have um, – you know, I, I covered a lot of foreign wars, and Mike has too, and, you know um, – 
you go off, you cover a war, you go back maybe and do some stories afterwards and, and you know, kind of tisk tisk, you know, this this place still hasn't come to grips with, with what happened and and now I find myself living in a post conflict society here in America where a lot of institutions, not just the, the, the media institution, though that's certainly an important one, but you know, political institution and, and military institutions too, um, you know, have not come to grips with, with what's happened, with what went wrong, yeah. how it went wrong and, and made amends and made corrections so it doesn't happen again. So, you know, excuse me, I, I, you know, I'm frustrated, I remain frustrated with the media, but I I remain more frustrated with my society at large, actually. I I, I feel, you know, I I covered the war in Bosnia in the 90s and I went back to to the former Yugoslavia afterwards and went back to Serbia, which was responsible for for starting uh, the the, the war in Bosnia and and killing a, a huge number of people. And that was a society that still is not Reconciled has not admitted what it did. Mm. But I'm, I find myself feeling the same way now about my own society, um, and it, it's it's more than just the media. Yeah. So so the exhibit is up. How long is the exhibit still up for? It's up until April nineteenth. Though it's looking like we may leave it up another week or so. So if you check our our website, which is uh, bronxstock.org, you'll be able to see if it's extended. But it'll certainly be there through uh, April nineteenth. Yeah. And Tim, for you, uh, do you think this exhibit should maybe travel elsewhere? Do you want to stay involved with the project? See if you want to get it out to other places. I I would love for it to be um, available to anyone who would have the interest in looking at it. One of the things we did early on is both have a physical exhibit at the Bronx Documentary Center, which I hope travels, but also make it available online. So we have a website, it's www.wardiaries.org, and you can actually download the entire diary, yeah. which is the majority of the exhibit. And we did it that way so that people in Portland, Oregon, or Honolulu, or Florida, wherever the exhibit may not go, if they were interested in reviewing it, they could still do it without having to travel to the physical location. Yeah. So, 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 Tim, is there something in you know? Is there a piece you you mentioned about you know things that get to the more complicated questions? I, I think you know that there's a few that stand out for me. But for for you in the in the diary journals yourself, what what do you feel is is perhaps one of the images or or stories that that for you really allows someone to quickly experience some of these more complications and nuances? Um, well, you know, take the, the shoot-don't-shoot criteria, which Peter's heard me talk about before. Um, take a young Marine Corps lieutenant who's 25 years old, put him in an M1A1 tank that can basically destroy anything in its path, put him at the front of a battalion uh, in an armored vehicle, and then give him intelligence that says, uh, we're jamming radio signals, uh, so the enemy's not going to be able to call in advance warning of our approach down the road. Uh, the way we expect them to deal with that uh, is instead of radio signals, which are jammed, we expect them to send runners and cars moving very rapidly fast away from you so they'll go screaming down away from you and, and, and tell the enemy positions that you're coming. Okay, makes sense to me. So we're moving. I'm in the front of the column. There's nobody in front of me, so it's my decision to shoot or don't shoot. And sure enough, just as they predicted, radio signals jamming, car pops out and goes flying away from me as fast as it can. I've got a few seconds to decide whether to shoot or not shoot before he's out of my range. And if I don't shoot and he goes and tells the bad guys that we're coming and they shoot and they kill us, that's bad news. So we engage, we disable the taxi, uh, wind up killing a taxi cab driver. I assume that he died. I, I, I didn't see him die, but I'm pretty sure he did. So I felt awful about that. 
truly just awful. Um, I did exactly as I was told, made the decision in a split second, which I thought was the right one, and somebody who didn't need to get shot got shot. Literally three days later, I'm in the next town. You can suppose that I'm probably feeling badly about that um, previous incident in AFAC. Um, and this time, I'm in the front of the battalion again, and in my M1A1 tank, it's my job to make sure I get it right. Uh, we go in, and my gunner says, hey, sir, uh, I'm identifying some, I think he said, suspicious-looking dudes in the grove right up ahead. And right up ahead meant about 50 yards. So I look down, my scope, oh, can't see any weapons, so we can't shoot them, so just keep watching. He says, but, uh, just keep watching them. Sure enough, they open fire and wind up killing a Marine behind me who's in a light-skinned vehicle. So the first time I shoot too fast based on information that I think I'm getting right and the wrong person dies. Uh, the next time, you know, hesitate a few seconds, Marine dies. Um, and those are decisions being made as best as we can. Um, yeah. They just don't... And you know, those two decisions are reflective of maybe one-tenth of one percent of all the decisions I made that we got right most of the time. The vast majority of the time you get these decisions right because you're well-trained and you're thinking clearly and you're doing the right thing. And it's those ones that you get wrong which are so stark in contrast that stick with you. And you know, while not everybody has those experiences, many, many people have very similar experiences where they don't remember the vast majority of the time you did it right. Yeah. You know, what sticks with you and keeps you up at night is the screw-ups. Not the screw-ups, the miscalculations, the fog of war, the thing that was going to happen eventually and it was just a matter of time yeah uh, so that that would be one example among many many examples yeah no there's so many powerful pieces in the show and and i'm i'm really it's it's really great that you put this out there you know your own personal diaries your own journals it was a little to, weird for me yeah but it's a great show and i hope that uh, you know folks can get out there and see it um but i really really it's really great that you and peter put this show together um and i want to thank you both for being on the show and and you as well so mike i want to quickly reference too that you have a book coming out uh, the untold stories from iraq photojournalists on war and how what's the what, how many photographers is this it's an oral history of the war, uh, with uh, as told by 39 photographers. And you know, as we've been talking today about how complex uh, a story this is, and how complex a war and a conflict it was, uh, you know, I I think uh, having 39 voices in there, uh, there's different points of view. You know, yeah. and, and that's uh, different parts of the country. People were there at different times. Europeans who are rabidly anti-war, Americans that thought the war was a good idea, and. We try to put all their all their voices together, as, as well as uh, a lot of photos that have never been published in the United States. So um, that's what the the book is about. We're hoping that uh, it'll be a source for people who are interested to go out and and read about it and and uh, get some idea of what really happened over there. All right. Well, I want to thank all three of you. We're out of time. Um, Peter, Tim, and Mike. Thank you guys for for doing this. Our pleasure. Thank you. All right. So this is WFMU. East Orange, WMFU, Mount Hope, in Rockland County, and 91.9 FM. Nardwar is up next. And, uh, yeah, so thanks. Thanks again.
Listening to WFMU, and it's time right now for the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. You just heard right there from Austin, Texas, the Charles Edward Cheese Band with Chapel of Love. Thank you so much, Gene Defcon from the Charles Edward Cheese Band from Austin, Texas, for sending me that track. And you gotta see pictures of the Charles Edward Cheese Band and check them out at the incredible Earl Cheeseband.com. The Charles Edward Cheese Band, as I mentioned, from Austin, Texas. And today on an Ardwarda Human Serviette radio show, interviews I did at the South by Southwest Music Festival in Austin, Texas. Gonna hear interviews with rapper Pusha T and comedians Fred Armisen and Mark Marin. And I'd like to give a special shout out to Tom Sharpling of The Best Show, who helped set up my interviews with Mark Marin and Fred Armisen. One call to Tom Sharpling delivers two interviews to you, the listeners of Denard Ward, a human serviette radio show of the Comedy Persuasion, and also an interview that Tom did not set up with Pusha T, as I mentioned. Pusha T, the rapper from Virginia Beach. So, coming up, interviews with Fred Armisen and Mark Marin, and again, thank you so much, Tom Sharpling, for setting those interviews up. Plus, an interview with 
Pusha T, and I'm going to play two tracks right now by a CD that was handed to me, a double shot. A lot of times when DJs play double shots, they burp saying the word double shot. I'm not going to say that, but I'm going to say the name of the band, The Mystic Knights of the Cobra. This CD was handed to me at South by Southwest by the amazing Mystic Knights of the Cobra, and we're going to hear two shots, as I mentioned, a double shot, El Camino and Foxy Roxy by Mystic Knights of the Cobra. And then Pusha T, and then Fred Armisen, and then Mark Marin, all on the Nardwar, the human serviette radio show on WFM. You get in the back seat. You want, you want to come in? Hello, I got a little stick shit action. Oh, yeah. Feel like yeah, that. Yeah, uno, nice. dos, uno, tres, cuatro, seis. El Camino, El, El Camino. El Camino, El, El Camino. The front is like a car, the back is like a truck. The front is where we kiss, the back is where we El Camino, El, El Camino. El Camino, El, El Camino. The front is like a car, the back is like a truck. The front is where we kiss, the back is where we El Camino. The back is like a truck, the front is where we kiss, the back is where we Sweetest gal in Sugar City, Foxy Roxy! <laughs> 